It's time now for all you ever wanted to know. A chance for you to get to know what's going on in and around your community and the fabulous people that make it happen. With On the Land, here's Jack Dawes. Well, once again, uh, good morning, and I guess ho, 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 this will be our Christmas edition of On the Land, uh, our extended Thursday version. You know, Yorkton once was branded as the turkey capital of Western Canada. This week, renewed commitment to preserving this region's food production and processing story. The historic flour mill project gets a boost from pork processor Harvest Meats. President Ken Prop. I worked in our grocery stores at the time, and we used to stock five roses flour twice a week because it was such a hot commodity in this city. Although I never actually set foot in the mill until it was almost too late. And what does a $100,000 commitment mean? Brick Flour Mill Capital Campaign Lead, Terry Tyson. The key that this does to us is as we continue to gain some private funding, we get further and further down the way with regards to engineering and design and being shovel ready, which then in turn opens up a lot of avenues for um, a, a more private funding as well as federal grants and the kind of thing that can kind of push you over the top. So we're calling today's program My Favorite Things, just to give it a Christmas send-off, if you will. I think we already knew this about Christmas presents for small children. That's about crinkly paper and toys. But for the record, some no-doubt helpful advice offered this week by the United States Department of Agriculture, no less. Two-year-old is interested in new things. As soon as whatever toy you give them is not new, they're interested in the next new thing. So, yeah, they might pick, take out the toy and play with it for a, a minute or two, but then they see the box, and then they see the, the paper that crinkles and is really fun. So I'm not saying that you want to give your child crinkly paper, um, but you certainly don't need to give them a $50 toy so that they can then play with the crinkly paper. You can give them a $5 toy, put it in a big box, and let them play with the $5 toy and the big box and the paper, and they will be happy as can be. Well, several segments of my favorite things on the land today are about books and a couple of local personalities that produce them. Meet the city girl, for example, who fell in love with a farmer and in the process became a farm woman extraordinaire, Sheila Harris, and then meet Jim Davies, who grew up with a passion for automobiles. It's all about on the land, our pre-Christmas edition. In other words, it's all about my favorite things, uh, being a selfish little kid, uh, <laughs> uh, my favorite things for our pre-Christmas presentation. Well, favorite thing number one this week was the launch of the next phase for the historic Yorkton Brick Flour Mill project. Harvest Meat said it would support an effort to meet a $2.2 million budget target to attach suitably an interpretive center at the mill site announcing a five-year, $100,000 commitment. Earlier this fall, the mill project outlined a plan to create a building which would bring to mind an earlier-era architectural form, in other words, the Prairie Railway Station. We spoke to Harvest Meets President Ken Prop at a news conference Tuesday. It will be advanced, of course, quicker if the uh, interpretive center is built quicker than they than, uh, they anticipate. I mean, it, it is about a year and a half, I guess, two years until they actually have drawings and they're ready to get going. But uh, uh, this announcement was made to sort of kickstart the funding and show that there is serious commitment in this city to have this thing built and completed. Uh, I think you maybe were there for part of the, the, the reasoning as to why we got involved. I mean, you certainly know the long history yeah. of, of the Prop family and Harvest Meats in this community going back to Brian in 1918. So as a young lad, I worked in our grocery stores at the time, and we used to stock five roses flour twice a week because it was such a hot commodity in this city. Although I never actually set foot in the mill until it was almost too late, but I felt it's sort of an emotional attachment to it. I mean, to me, that, that mill was the start of food processing in the city of Yorkton. 
And I think, you know, people will realize and appreciate, I think, the size and the scale of the businesses in the food sector that we have in this city and how indicative of Saskatchewan for us to be such a such a vibrant part of that. So preserving the mill was, was kind of personally important to me, as well as Dave Harris, who's our production manager. Uh, his mother was one of the early pioneers of establishing a committee to actually try and, and, and save the mill. So... So an attachment to it and uh, sort of a, a push over the edge, if you will, by making a major contribution and encouraging people in the city in whatever way you can. No, no contribution would be too small, you know, to help preserve this and turn it into a, a viable going concern again, not as a mill, but as an interpretive center recognizing the importance of food processing in the city of Yorkton. Hmm. So... Uh, your family via a grocery store, and I believe at one time you operated a coffee shop as well. So you've been in the business of gathering, and that, that apparently what the mill was about as well, was a gathering place? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, as I said, I didn't have the pleasure of being in the mill when it operated, but certainly a lot of my friends were farmers and, and vividly remember going there with a load of grain and coming out with flour from that mill and, and many, many fond memories, including Dave Harris. Uh, you know, had spent many times as a child in that uh, particular facility. So we certainly, you were here when that mill was transformed into, you know, it died a very slow death, as we all realize. I think the last operation was actually to be organic, which was probably 15 years before its time. And uh, had it come, you know, a few years ago, that mill might be a viable organic mill. I don't know. I'm certainly not familiar with the technology, but knowing that, that that most of the equipment, not all of it, but most of the equipment is still in that mill, it, it, uh, my, my goal would be to see that sort of mini-functional at some point in time so that people can get an understanding of exactly how that process works. It was interesting to tour grain millers and see the similarity in processes, much more high-tech, and, uh, you know, use of modern technology in that mill, and certainly there was in the old mill, but the process of milling and separating and grinding is still still very, very similar to what's, uh, what's happening today. So uh, I hope that it, uh, you know, we get the interpretive center and we get to actually make that sort of semi-operational, if you will, and encourage people to understand how food is made and processed. Uh, I think we're all aware that we're getting so far from the farm that people don't understand where food comes from anymore other than off of a store, uh, off the shelf in a grocery store. Well, it just so happens the capital campaign chair for the Mill Interpretive Project does know a thing or two about milling. Terry Tyson, in his day job, is general manager at Grain Millers Canada in Yorkton. Oh, it's it's huge to us, right? We we officially launched the campaign just a couple of weeks ago with sort of a foundation of funding, and we've been knocking on doors focused on the agribusiness and agri-food, which, of course, led us to knock on Harvest Meat's door early on. And as you know, that logo and that name is everywhere in this city supporting local initiatives, and uh, they've come on board with just a huge gem generous uh, contribution. It's, it means means so much to us. It gets the ball rolling even faster, builds some momentum, and demonstrates that support. Yeah, so Harvest Beast has, has graciously agreed to contribute $100,000 to the project. So a really nice, uh, big momentum-building kind of number there. So how close to the target does that take us? Well, it's, we still got some work to do. As you know, I think from the launch, it is a sizable budget. It's about a $2.2 million budget. This will put us about 35% of the way there. Uh, the key that this does to us is as we continue to gain some private funding, we get further and further down the way with regards to engineering and design and being shovel ready, which then in turn opens up a lot of avenues for um, a, a more private funding as well as federal grants and the kind of things that can kind of push you over the top. So is this indicative of what the business, how the business community has reacted? Yeah, we're 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 in our infancy, but we are 
certainly getting a, a good response. We do have another couple of announcements coming up here in the near future as well of some really solid support from from local business. Yeah. I don't know if you can draw a straight line, but all right. So obviously the the brick flour mill was a food processor. We're here with a food processor. I guess that's part of this agriculture fabric here. It is. Yeah. And then the underlying, you know, the the project really has two purposes. One is to restore that mill site as a vibrant gathering hub as it used to be. The other is to connect society to agriculture and agri-food. And so that's why we focus, at least so far, on those agribusiness, agri-food businesses to try to, to gain funding. It's the kind of goal or objective that most agribusiness is in alignment with. And uh, Ken said some words, Ken Prop said some words about the very fact that this mill sort of is the foundation of ag- of agri-food in Yorkton, which has, uh, you know, grown up to include the likes of Harvest Meats and Grain Millers and the Richardson plant, the Dreyfus plant, right? It's, it's, we've become such an agri-food hub here, and it all starts back in the, the late 1800s with that mill. Well, in its early 20th century beginnings, the flour mill, as you heard, was where people brought wheat to be milled and often met their neighbors there, originally at the original York Colony site a mile north of Yorkton. On November 24th, the capital campaign next phase rolled out, and again, Terry Tyson explained the vision for this interpretive center concept linked to the surviving mill structure. We, we see the design to pay homage to the relocation of York Colony and the establishment of the mill where it's located now uh, will feature a, a railroad station roof design. Um, Kind of an iconic design on the prairies, much, much loved. So um, that's just part of that whole aesthetic of uh, tying together the past and the present. Well, Terry Tyson sees that the mill project is aligned with other ag education and awareness entities. You know, in keeping with sort of the message and efforts with some of the uh, wonderful groups out there like Ag in the Classroom and Farm and Food Care SAS, we decided we should maybe lend our voices, lend our space to that effort of you know, advocating for agriculture and agri-food, agribusiness, all kind of rolled up into one. You, it, it's unquestionably here, year after year, people get a little bit, or society gets a little bit more distant from the family farm, where not that long ago, everybody was, you know, either directly connected or once removed or something like that. And so with that, you get people that just don't know or understand where their food comes from. And not knowing can, can also lead to not trusting and misinformation. So for this uh, flour mill uh, slash interpreter center, what's the bottom line? It's, you know, it won't sustain itself. And so... The other things that we're doing kind of check the box on the second part of our goal, and that's restoring that site to, uh, you know, an active, vibrant gathering hub. Uh, When mills were built on the prairies back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were um, economic and social centers of the communities. The communities grew up around them, and, you know, as that facility fell into disuse. Obviously, that was impacted. That The site has sat empty for a lot of years. Now that the mill is kind of restored, we've been able to hold events at it again. But we see uh, the other components of the building being what uh, draws people to the site, um, exposes them to that interpretive center content, and ultimately keeps the lights on. That again, uh, Terry Tyson, he's the Capital Campaign Chairman uh, with the historic brick mill, uh, uh, flour mill project uh, uh, in Yorkton, uh, a big kickoff uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the first major uh, contributor stepping forward from Harvest Meats in Yorkton this past week. Well, one of the lesser-known outcomes from the recent flood-related transportation route shutdown in B.C. has been a sort of new export for Vancouver Port, the shipment of 
empty containers to China. The issue was raised during a major transportation conference Tuesday held online. In its 26th year, the conference is hosted by the University of Manitoba's Transport Institute. The conference called Fields on Wheels and has a reputation for presenting the cutting edge of transportation issues and technology. And we asked a frequent transport commentator to On the Land, Mary Jane Bennett, to unpack that part of the story. Ms. Bennett is a lawyer and transportation consultant in Vancouver. Yeah, this is uh, one of the real um, sad effects of uh, a number of um, matters that need to be uh, addressed. First of all, um, because of the high shipping costs, China's uh, requiring its uh, containers to be returned uh, immediately. So there's this uh, quick turnaround of containers. But um, the Port of Vancouver CEO, uh, Robin Sylvester, has mentioned, um, re- well, has reiterated recently um, and has been doing so for nine years that uh, Vancouver Port needs more space in order to accommodate this growth in container traffic that right now they are land-constrained uh, for growth. They have had a project, the Rogers, uh, not the Rogers, no, the um, Roberts Bank uh, T2 uh, terminal has been held up uh, awaiting for um, permits for, for a number of years, and that would allow them the space to um, have a field of empty containers where you could do this uh, movement of empty, the containers would no longer be empty, they would be moving back to China with Canadian goods. So you could do this uh, nice back and forth uh, transfer. Uh, That's not available to them right now and um, we're the poorer for it. That again, uh, Mary Jane Bennett, a transportation consultant. She also sat in on the Fields on Wheels conference. Uh, we just mentioned it. Uh, now, in this next segment, we learn to think about regional transportation hubs. Regional is in regions such as Canada, the U.S. and Mexico. Pretty big thinking. That's next on the land from The Rock. It's magic and memories. It Feels Like Christmas is sponsored by Carlton Trail Victory Church, Bailey's Funeral Home, and Sharing Optical. There will be those this year, as every year, who will find no joy in Christmas. They are the homeless, the poor, those in prison, the lonely, and the brokenhearted. But it won't necessarily be the circumstances that will make this Christmas joyless for some. It will rest more with attitude and defeat. The joylessness will touch the haves as well as the have-nots. Wealth and affluence do not guarantee the Marian Christmas, for, for that kind of goodwill is found only in the heart, and even the poorest of persons can have the richest of heart. It's just to reach out and touch for the sake of touching, a gentle greeting in the name of love, a, a smile to reawaken kindness. It takes so little and, and costs nothing, and, and it's the only gift that makes a difference to that child born in Bethlehem. Christmas is of the heart, no matter who we are or where we are. The true Christmas of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I'm Gip Forster. Have a Merry Christmas. It feels like Christmas. It feels like Christmas. It feels like Christmas is sponsored by Yorkton Dodge, Melville GMC, and our wireless. You're listening to all you ever wanted to know. If you have a question for today's guest, call 783-5160 or 1-855-449-5160. Well, we just heard about the uh, Fields on Wheels conference. Uh, That group also heard from an investment group known under an acronym Caxor. Uh, their group has laid the groundwork for a transportation corridor, get this, reaching from Manzanilla, a port on Mexico's west coast, to Winnipeg's so-called inland terminal center port. They're laying out the TMEC corridor, remember that one as well, as an aspect covered under the K 
Canada-U.S.-Mexico Trade Agreement, which, of course, also has an acronym, CUSMA. Uh, remember, that was signed back in the Trump era, and we wondered what it might amount to. So let's begin with Hawaii, Winnipeg. Kevin Cully was the CAXOR spokesman at Fields on Wheels. The segment was called Nearshoring. And one question I, I'm asked, no matter where I go upon my travels, is why Winnipeg? As shown here, Winnipeg is the most strategic location within North America for a project such as the TMEC corridor. It is also important to note that by 2040, Mexico will require transportation infrastructure to manage 25 million TUs per year. By the same time in 2040, the TMEC project will be able to provide for 8 million TUs, which equates to only 32% of just Mexico's requirements. And I forgot to mention going into that segment, uh, these transportation uh, folks use that term TEU, which I don't totally understand, but I understand it has to do with container shipping, and uh, they, they're they sh- talking about shipping a, a whole lot of containers. So uh, just to move on from there, uh, the Caxer Group is an international conglomerate which says it has the strength to, quote, drive infrastructure projects and other real assets. I guess that means to build big stuff. Caxor can also finance governments and large companies, as well as advise during the process. Caxor is not just another firm. They say they have an unprecedented performance. The USMCA agreement has spawned opportunities to eliminate supply-side constraints and to also provide additional distribution network opportunities. In 2018, only 1.4% of our exports were destined for Mexico, and only 6.2% of Canadian imports originated in Mexico. Mexico, of course, also imports goods. An example, as we've discussed before, is soybeans. Soybean imports into Mexico for 2021 are forecasted to be at 6.1 million metric tons. However, the Mexican soybean production remains at 250,000 metric tons. It's also important to note that this project, the TMEC corridor, is not being driven by the Canadian nor the American side of the equation. For Mexico, the U.S. East Coast and Canada represent huge market potential for its products. And for Canada and the U.S., Mexico represents an opportunity to access goods currently being produced from China and other Pacific Rim countries. The TMEC corridor project will provide greater supply security and open the continent to the free flow of products in all directions. In essence, the TMEC corridor intends to transform the Pacific Basin transport seascape. 2021 has revealed global supply chain weaknesses that are translating into prices that us as consumers have have never seen. Our California ports are saturated. The tanker freight is backed up. Shipping and ports currently handle 80% of global merchandise trade by volume and 70% by value, as we've already heard from other speakers. The TMEC corridor project will provide shippers with new options to access the Pacific coast and with north-south interconnectivity to existing ground transport networks. So that again was Kevin Cully with uh, Caxor, and that was a webinar on uh, Tuesday uh, talking about uh, uh, some pretty big stuff in uh, transportation. And again, what they're talking about is uh, a trade corridor uh, which will run from Manzanilla uh, Mexico on their uh, west coast uh, through to Winnipeg. Kind of mind-blowing. Uh, and again, the uh, the Caxor group says it has the strength to drive these infrastructure projects and other real estate assets. Well, Caxor uh, does have regional offices uh, in the United Kingdom, also in Mexico, of course, where it was founded. Uh, and uh, it works in Panama, Colombia, and other countries. It has three companies together. One is called Real Assets, another Finance and Global Advisors. The origin of Caxor is actually as a real estate developer, construction and engineering. And they have built alliances, they say, and partnerships with investors, financial firms, as well as international funds. 
Caxor stands out mainly, they say, as an infrastructure investor, and they say it's also begun to develop specialized technology to improve global infrastructure standards. The Pacific Basin sees the largest volumes of freight flow on the planet. In comparison, and in 2019, Vancouver saw a record volume of 3.4 million TUs. And in fact, if we take the five busiest ports in Canada, being Vancouver, St. John, Halifax, Montreal, and Port Rupert, added together, only total 6.3 million TUs. Upon completion, Seaport will rank number 20 of the top 20 wet ports in the world. So, again, in the world of mega shipping logistics, uh, just to help understand the lingo, again, the firm, the term rather, TEUs, which again, I don't claim to understand fully. Uh, I've been told that a single TEU unit represents 20 feet of container shipping. Uh, I'm sort of getting my mind around that. So on that scale, a 40-foot container would represent, I think, two TEU. This slide that we are currently seeing represents a high-level overview of what the Mexico portion of this project will entail. This project will transform the Port of Mazatlan into the most efficient container handling facility on the planet. Our development will occur over three phases. The initial phase, providing capacity for 4 million TEUs per year. In 2031, this will be at 6 million TEUs per year. By 2036, and upon the third phase completion, our total seaport capacity will be 8 million TUs per year. From Mazatlan, enhanced rail connectivity will now connect the state of Sinaloa to the state of Durango. This will now fuel the construction of four new logistics centers. They are located in Durango, Lerdo, Frontera, and Nava. This will open efficient rail and road freight flow into the southern United States as well as to points north. Well, obviously in our time here, we can't give you the whole story on this T-MEC corridor, but now at least we know about it. And as we all know, our ports are busy, our tankers are backing up. Nearshoring is code for consolidation of regional trade. Consolidation of regional trade is a reality, and it does make sense, both from a cost perspective and as well as from a risk perspective. North America has unfortunately trailed other regions. So, ladies and gentlemen, I would submit that Seaport and the TMIC corridor will open markets and opportunities for Canadian farmers, producers, shippers, manufacturers, and transporters. This will also afford Canadian consumers additional supply options and greater price competition. On behalf of Caxor Canada and on behalf of myself, it has been an honor. I want to thank you. Well, again, Kevin Cully of Caxor, a speaker at the 26th Annual University of Manitoba Transport Institute, hosted virtually, as in online, on Tuesday. Well, Harry Siemens uh, was uh, online as well, uh, listening in on that conference. Uh, uh, Harry, you uh, uh, extracted some uh, some takeaways from it. Uh, what was uh, What's your take on it? Well, there's the January 1st, uh, all truck drivers have to be vaccinated going to the U.S. and coming to Canada. At this point, there's something like 22,000 truckers that have said they are not vaccinated. And what will it do to cross-border companies? Uh, I talked to one fertilizer representative, Ryan Dick, uh, from ADM on Twitter, and he said basically the rates have already increased. Well, I had a chance to ask the question of the uh, Fields and Wheels conference, and and two people answered it. Diane Gray, uh, CEO of uh, Centerport, which is the northern uh, hub of what the big uh, thing that you were talking about, and uh, John Harmon, managing director of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Next question uh, is from Harry Siemens. If not in order, let me know, but there's much concern or discussion about thousands of truckers not getting vaccines and not driving trucks across the border as of 2022. How do the panelists see that affecting the transportation supply chain? We'll start with Diane. Well, I think it is going to have an impact, no doubt. And I... My husband happens to work in in the trucking industry, and 
they, he is vaccinated, by the way, um, the, they're already seeing rates go up. And I think that is going to be one of the near-term implications because there isn't going to be the same number of drivers that are willing to cross, you know, that are that are going to go south um, or come north um, specifically. So I think there's going to be rate increases. And I also think it presents a, a greater opportunity for rail. So you may see some mode shifts. So that'll be my two answers and, and potentially more delays. So it's not good. It's the short. It's not good if you're a shipper. We've seen a lot more rate requests come in for cross-border traffic. Uh, in particular, specifically because of this. Uh, one of the issues we have, though, is a lot of the uh, ultimate destination for, let's say, feed products going north into Manitoba. Uh, the destinations are not necessarily rail-served, so we're trying to connect um, origins with rail-served destinations and then working out trucking options to get them to their final destinations. But we're absolutely seeing more of it trying to convert to it. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, Harry. So uh, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I certainly had not heard of this Caxar group uh, before. Uh, but uh, it sounds like some pretty ambitious plans. And uh, uh, the the talk about what they're doing in in uh, in Mexico, uh, something. What is it? Uh, Ninety-seven miles or something like that of highway and tunnels through mountains and. Uh, uh, a seaport uh, uh, 100 miles away so they don't have to bring the big ships right into the Manzanilla Harbor. Uh, it uh, To me, it was kind of a mind-blowing morning. And, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it, it rolls out. And uh, I guess the other thing, the uh, dominant thought for me, was uh, when this uh, Kuzma agreement was signed, Canada... Uh, U.S. Mexico, you kind of wondered, okay, is this just another uh, piece of baffle gab? But uh, it looks like it might actually uh, be paying off uh, for all three countries. Well, you know, that's what the center port, uh, the one we just heard from Diane Gray. I mean, I don't know. I don't think you've toured center port. I've been through center port many times, and it's a it's the hub that uh, you know it goes west. Uh, East uh, makes Manitoba the hub going straight to Mexico, and it has to do with air uh, and uh, truck and rail. And so it's all being set up, and, and they've got this huge uh, 650 acres. It's a, it's a full section of land that they're using for that, and there's an awful lot of development that has gone on in that place. Absolutely. So... Uh uh, and there is one of these uh, inland uh, ports uh, being developed in Saskatchewan. It was uh, pretty controversial over a land deal and so forth, which I think kind of obscured uh, the real reason behind going there. But uh, I was, uh, I don't know about you, but I was really encouraged by this whole Caxor presentation and uh, what the spinoff might be. And uh, now, Harry, I know you have to uh, break away. Uh, just uh, your final thoughts on it. Uh, well, I, I did have another interview with a farmer, but maybe that there isn't time for that. Well, let's. Uh, while we're on the topic, uh, it, it would be a good follow-up. So, uh, uh, Jordan, if we've got that uh, teed up there, you go ahead and introduce it, Harry. Yeah, it's uh, Brendan Yeruski. He comes from a place called Zabaraz is a locality within the rural municipality of Fisher in the Interlake region of central Manitoba, Canada, 126 kilometers northwest of Winnipeg. And he's the grandson to Bill Yaruski, who was one of the uh, agricultural ministers way back when under the NDP government. But uh, I, he's a young farmer, 28 years old, farming with his dad, but it looks like he's calling the shots, 2,200 acres of uh, cropland and uh, and a, a whole uh, and a big turkey uh, contract. So uh, it, it's an interesting talk. Grow? Oh, we've grown wheat. You know your typical wheat, oats, canola, peas, uh, soybeans. Uh, we've grown. We do dabbled a little bit sometimes in some specialty. We've grown like borage. Uh, we did that a few years ago. Um, we tried to put some tree foil on this year, but it wasn't the year for establishment. Dad, dad, a long time ago, he had tried some hemp, but that's 
we have I have not done any of that. It's been just mostly the the mainstay crops of the area. So what was this year like? This year was like a year never seen before with uh you know, you're washing the crops, they they they're looking good and and it's like, okay, we got some hope and you're and it's just the rains never came and the yield or wheat I don't think hit thirty. Our canolas, a majority of them were just about zeros. Um, we had one one field that did okay, but still, if you call 20, okay. And the same thing, oats, like oats was, I don't know if we got 40, 50 bushels when when last year was 150. Was was not the year we were all, you know, hoping for, looking for, and especially with the grain prices, the way they were. You, you look at last year and it's like, oh, we would have made, uh, what was it, 1200 bucks an acre on our oats. So how do you market? Where do you sell? We've forward contracted nothing this year. Some years we definitely have kind of try to watch how it's kind of looking before we, we pre-book uh, too much. The last many years it's all been actually going to Patterson Green. Our oats this year actually didn't turn out too great because we left them a long time in the field. And dad actually threw them on uh, that app called Combine. But believe how it works is, so you take, uh, you know, we have, uh, I think it's 10, 15,000 bushels of oats. And you kind of put up a little description about them and say, hey, this is where we are. We have this many bushels um, asking this price. And then there's a list of buyers on there that browse and see what they like. And if they like it, I guess they click on it and message you and, and start asking about about it and whatnot. Tell me about the, the- you know, when, when you look at 2,300 acres and and you have your 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 turkey quota, so how does how does the income just the, the ballpark is, is split between your your grain grain farm and your turkeys? We're not corporated or nothing. We're just a partnership. Right. We've been dabbling in that whole. Is it the right to go uh, go that way or not for for you know obviously tax reasons or whatnot? But some years, like we go back, I'm sure you remember back in 08 and 09 and all those years when it was wet. And if it yeah. wasn't for those those turkeys bringing us that money, uh, it would, we had real, real, we had real real tough times on the farm. Uh, so uh, Harry, uh, I, I I forget what the distance you said, uh, Brendan farms from from winnipeg but i i think in my mathematics it sounds like he farms in the middle of lake manitoba uh, did you say northwest of winnipeg uh, yeah north 126 <laughs> kilometers er, yeah kilometers northwest of winnipeg i'm just yeah, teasing was, you <laughs> right yeah <laughs> well harry i i know uh, you've got to break away but uh uh we should uh uh, we should wish each other a Merry Christmas, I guess. Hey, you know what? Uh, you, you bet. It's been a real pleasure working with you again and and uh, your radio station there and with Jordan especially too for 19 or for two, 2021. It's been an interesting year. And at the same time, uh, you know what? God is good. God is great. And I wish all of you a real Merry Christmas and God's blessings. And we know what the reason for the season is the birth of Jesus Christ's celebration. Absolutely. Thank you, Harry. And uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you before Christmas. Uh, you're listening to On the Land. Uh, and uh, just from uh, there, we're going to move on to my theme of my favorite things. Now, one of my favorite things is books, especially history. And that's right in the wheelhouse of an extremely dynamic individual. And lucky for me, a good friend, Sheila Harris of Yorkton. Sheila grew up a city girl. Her dad, Herb Linfoot, was a Second World War vet, a naval observer, I believe, during the war. And at that time, the family was based in B.C. But post-war... Sheila's dad, Herb, was an electrical engineer here in Yorkton uh, when the city had its own electrical plant, I believe. Now, in other words, Sheila seldom, if ever, spent much time on or near a farm. But that all changed in 1954, wooed and won, I might say, by a handsome and audacious young Yorkton farmer, Gordon Harris. Now, they moved on to the Harris family farm home, Maple Grove Farm, which had been established in 1888, just south of Yorkton. Over the years, both Sheila and Gordon were active in many community and farming ventures, especially the Yorkton Exhibition Association. 
says Sheila writes in her just-published memoir, one of several books she has either written or been part of the production. Uh, Gordon died on Christmas Day 2013. Her memoir is called Cow, Sow, and Sheila. It's a wonderful collection of farm life memories, mid-50s to the present. We asked her to read for us just one vignette. People of a certain age, I think, will relate to the segment Winter Woes. On March 1956, a Monday night, Gordon and I went into Yorkton to curl in a Bonksville and left young Bob uh, to babysit Gary and David. Unknown to us in the curling rink, a terrible winter storm had blocked all the roads and highway. We could not get home to the farm. Gordon phoned his cousin to meet him with the tractor to give him a ride to the farm. I stayed in Yorkton with relatives. Gordon had to get home to do the chores while Bob looked after the boys. Bob was in grade 11 at the time, so he was around 17. It stormed for three days. The highway was not cleaned until it stopped snowing. They could not phone me, but I could phone the farm. I had to phone often to give Bob instructions on making formula and sterilizing bottles. Our phone was on a party line. About 16 farms were connected to the same line. Each farm had a different ring. We answered to one long ring and two shorts. If someone was using the phone, you could not get through. All people could listen to everyone's conversations. Some women spent their time listening to all their gossip that they could. could. If you needed to get uh, the phone in an emergency, you could tell the person to get off the line. It was Thursday before I got home. Uncle Fred, the dairy farmer, had to bring milk into the creamery. So we arranged to meet at the mill to give me a ride to the farm. I rode in the wagon box, pulled by a team of horses, and went through the fields. Gordon brought his horse and the stone boat with a bale of hay for me to sit on, and I finally got home. (laughs) The boys were happy to see me and were doing fine. Bob said he thought I'd bathe David in the morning, so he dunked him in the water pail. (laughs) Not true, of course. So that again is uh, Sheila Harris reading from her book, Cow, Sow, and Sheila, uh, and uh, how a young Yorkton woman, and eventually her husband Gordon, lived, loved, and laughed at Maple Grove Farm. All right, so Sheila Harris is the author of the recently published Cow, Sow, and Sheila. And Sheila, if you would, uh, I know you're kind of a historian, but uh, tell me about what led to you actually publishing this memoir. Well, actually, I think I thought of it 15 years ago or more. I kept saying I should write a book on my interesting life at at the farm, being a city girl and going to a farm and not knowing, hardly knowing a bull from a cow. (laughs) And, uh, And, you know, I just put it off and put it off. I would think about it once in a while. And uh, actually, since I retired, I, uh, which would have been 15 years ago or so, uh, I started sorting all the pictures. And there was boxes of pictures. And so that inspired me to perhaps get doing something about it and uh, so it was only last year I think I've written a few pages then I changed it all and then started writing different and and, yeah I worked on it mostly last year so that again, uh, a chat with uh, Sheila Harris. Uh, the book is Cow, Sow, and Sheila. You can order it online through Freezing Press or uh, people who know Sheila and pr- 
pretty <laughs> a large number of people do, and also her son David, uh, who's over at uh, Harvest Meats here. We mentioned it earlier in the program. Uh, uh, can help you find a copy, uh, or if in doubt, get a hold of me, and we'll get one for you. It's a great, great read and a great piece of history. Well, Tim Davies is not only a boots on the ground history investigator; he has a love for automobiles and the automotive business. His dad was a military officer, so in early years the family moved a lot, including several stints, I believe, with the Canadian Army in Germany. But Jim's mum originally grew up at Springside, and that became the Davies family home in post-military years. You've started and have done a lot of work on a, uh, let's say, history of the automotive industry in Yorkton. Uh, Tell us about the seeds of that. Well, thanks for asking. Um, I've been a car guy all my life, and uh, it's always been an interesting thing to me, both as a hobbyist and as a career, of course. Um, About a dozen years ago, I went looking for a photograph of the car dealership in Yorkton where my grandfather started his long career as a General Motors salesman in 1947. And his name was? Art Davies. Um, Moved in here from Springside in 1940, got into the car business, and started selling cars for uh, S&H Motors uh, here in Yorkton in 1947. Uh, They moved down to Winnipeg in 1951, uh, built Community Chevrolet, and that's where I got my start in the automobile industry, and I'm still doing it. What did S&H stand for? Southerman Hamilton. Um, Gord Southerman and Herb Hamilton had moved here in 47 from Newdale, Manitoba, where they had been a Chevrolet dealer and farm implements and such. Uh, identifying, uh, you know, once the pipeline started getting some cars in it uh, in the post-war years, um, identifying an opportunity here. So they moved into town and bought basically half of Yorkton Motors, the Chevrolet Oldsmobile half. And my grandfather went to work for them in 47, moved to Winnipeg, as I say, in 51, and uh, spent the rest of his career uh, selling cars there. And, of course, that's where I got involved in this as well. And then uh, Grandpa retired in about 82 back to uh, his hometown of Springside. So when I went looking for this photograph, I discovered that there's a wonderful archive uh, at the uh, Yorkton Library of the Yorkton Enterprise going back to about 1897 or something like that. Well, boy, is that interesting stuff to look at old uh, copies of newspapers. Well, very soon the project expanded a bit. It's funny now. It expanded a bit because uh, there has actually been 75, if you can imagine, different dealerships, car dealerships in Yorkton since 1904. That's a lot of car dealerships. But even more spectacular than that is that those 75 dealerships represented over 80 different makes of cars. Now, sure, you can uh, you can name off the big three or the big four or the big six or whatever it is now, and you can go into the second run, like the Nash and the Hudson that became American Motors and the Studebaker and the and the uh, uh, Packard and various other makes, but try to think of 40 or 50 different makes you've never even heard of. They were all sold at one time or another in right here in York and Saskatchewan. So it was a great big project that took on its own life um, in, in, in putting this together. And really, um, you know, perhaps of limited scope initially, uh, a, a slice of the motoring and the history and the people and the places that put Yorkton on wheels. Fantastic big story. So, uh, your quest for information uh, has taken you down some rabbit holes and uh, some up some hills and whatnot. That's <laughs> that's for sure. It's tough to look at a at a year of uh, of microfilm on a newspaper and uh, really rabbit holes. Really, just to see and where things are and what things cost back in those days and who were these players. And uh, you know, when you talk about eighty different types of vehicles, even if you only counted Chevrolet once or Ford once or or, or Chrysler once. 80 different types of cars. It's a pretty great story, and and, and I just felt that, um, you know, it's certainly duplicated uh, thousands and thousands of times in the North American economy since uh, the horseless carriage came along. So it's been a it's been a fun thing. I kind of got waylaid uh, on this project, unfortunately, in uh, 2010, as you recall, I believe, was it the July long weekend we had the big flood? Well, of course, then the library was closed for a year. Couldn't do much about it at that point. 
and uh, um, went off on a bit of a tangent uh, again uh, where my father's health uh, took a turn and uh, he passed away a, a few years later and I kind of got uh, tied up in uh, handling the estate and doing uh, various things. He was a military man and certainly that's a subject uh, that we'll talk about at a later date. He was a military man with none other than the older brother of Mr. Jack Dawes but we will go into that at some other time perhaps. Um, but uh, but uh, kind of put that on hold and uh, and got wrapped up with a family history project uh, that again is a, a lot to do with Yorkton and Springside and, and things like that. Uh, some uh, some uh, some very wonderful stories, a lot of historical background, uh, certainly the Depression, wars and rumors of wars, and it's been a real fun project that I wish I'd have taken up about 20 years ago when more of the witnesses were still with us. If you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, has the automotive uh, story in Yorkton become a book? Yes, and it basically, uh, let's call it a book. Um, <laughs> as soon as I put my family history uh, story to bed, I'm going to self-publish that just on a limited basis, um, family, friends, and others sort of thing uh, next year, um, and, and really put that to bed. And then I'm going to jump back into this uh, this uh, car business thing because it is such a neat story of uh, of our of our history, of our town and our province's development. Um, uh, one of the things that I've been doing, of course, uh, everybody talks about the way COVID has waylaid us for the last um, 18, well, almost two years now, I guess. Um, one of the things I've been doing over the last year or so is some little snippets of uh, selfie videos, let's call it that. And I put together a couple that are uh, uh, fun. I have fun with them. Um, it's, it's historical background of uh, the automobile industry uh, and our city and how they tied together. And I have fun with them. And I put together a couple of, a couple of these and... And uh, they're going on uh, on a YouTube channel. There's a couple of them out there now. You can access it through the Key Chevrolet uh, website. It's called Remnants of Our Past. And it's a couple of places, uh, stories of places in Yorkton that you might trip over someday and say, what's that about? Or what am I looking at here? Well, these are the stories of what that means um, to our history or what is it and how is it related to the car business, which, uh, whether you're a gearhead or not, is a big slice of our, our history and our economy in the past, of course. That again, uh, conversation with Jim Davies, and as you might have noticed from the, some of the background sounds, we were having a coffee, and uh, I at least had a donut over at Tim Hortons West while we chatted. So that accounts for some of the background noise uh, uh, that you might have picked up there. Well, these days, Jim, uh, Jim Davies and his wife, and I think a family cat, live year-round at Good Spirit Lake, but you may often find Jim on a street corner in Yorkton, apparently talking to himself, but really, he'll be talking to his cell phone camera as he puts together still another one of those Davies original man-in-the-street vignettes about the history of automobiles in Yorkton and the dealership which, which displayed them. So uh, uh, some of my favorite things, uh, good friends uh, Sheila Harris and Jim Davies, a couple of local uh, author types and uh, uh, their publications. And uh, uh, again, uh, Cow, Sow and Sheila is just out. It's a, a memoir and uh, the many people who know Sheila will enjoy many of the vignettes and we'll get a chance to share more of them uh, perhaps on another program as well. So I want to thank our producer, Jordan, who puts up with me every week and uh, uh, glues the uh, <laughs> the program together for us. Our good buddy, Harry Siemens, uh, who chirps in from uh, his home in Winkler, Manitoba. Uh, so uh, this will be our final on-the-land uh, uh what we I call the the long show, the one hour program on Thursday, and uh, we uh, hope that all everybody in our listener land at the Rock ninety eight five have a, a Merry Christmas. So, on behalf of uh, my wife Jeanette and me and the Dawes family and a couple of dogs and and yeah, even one cat that'll spend uh, uh, Christmas together at Sulcoats. I'm Jack Dawes on the land from the Rock. Merry Christmas.